welcome to episode 31 of the podcast history does you today we'll be covering the battle of Quezon, and we had an interview with greg jones which i'm pretty excited about Actually, I recorded this last weekend, but I kind of revised the episode to start off because of that article in the Atlantic that came out. Today is Thursday, September 3rd, which got into some pretty disgusting comments from the president, from President Trump. And I know that I try to avoid politics because I get it. It's polarizing. It's exhausting. People try to avoid it, but I get it. But for me, at least, there just comes a point where I have to say something. And reading that article... Not going to lie, I was sick to my stomach. That's all I can say about it. I was sick to my stomach to see him call Marines who were killed at the Battle of Bellow Wood suckers and losers. And some of the other things that were in that article were just disgraceful. Disgraceful. That's the only way I can describe it. And if you saw my story, you know that I've been to Normandy. I went at 11 years old with my whole family over there. I've been to those cemeteries. I've been to the American ones, the British ones. And the fact that me as an 11-year-old and my little brother as eight and my little sister at six years old have a better understanding of the sacrifices that were made by many of those young men and the president, it's so pathetic. It's so pathetic. And, And in particular, again, it just so happened that I was doing the Battle of Quezon for today's episode, which is one of those battles that the Marine Corps holds very near and dear. And the Marine Corps, its heritage, its history is very crucial to its mission. And it teaches it. A lot of those battles are taught and remembered. And the Battle of Bellow Wood, the Battle of Iwo Jima and Okinawa and Kaisai and Hue and Fallujah, those various battles and sacrifices are remembered. So for the president to go out and say that stuff didn't really surprise me. But still, when I read it, Again, it's just disgusting, disgraceful. That's the only way I can describe it. And I just would have, wouldn't have felt good with me if I didn't say something. Because, you know, I get it. People support him because he cuts their taxes or supports or gets them judges or whatever. But, you know, there just comes a point in time when, again, it's just, it's stuff like these that just, it's honestly, it's just embarrassing, first off, as an American. But again, it's just so disgraceful to all the young men and women who have sacrificed in America's wars, regardless of the merits of it. I mean, you can argue over the merits of Vietnam or Iraq or whatever, but to say, yeah, their sacrifices were for nothing and to call them losers and suckers, it's so pathetic. And again, the first time Trump said something, which was about John McCain, who again, I didn't really always agree on McCain with policy stuff. I get it. You can have disagreements, but for him to, again, not call him a war hero or, again, especially coming from a guy who dodged a draft in Vietnam. It would have been one thing if Trump had served and whatnot, but again, this is a guy who dodged a draft, who, when it was his turn to serve, he didn't. And it's just, again, it's just so disgraceful and disgusting. So again, I'm not going to rant any longer. It wouldn't have sat well with me if I didn't say something. So again, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Greg Jones. The Battle of Quezon, again, is one of those battles that the Marine Corps holds near and dear and is a big part of their history. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview and I hope you learned a lot. On today's episode, we welcome on Greg Jones. He's an award-winning investigative journalist and international news correspondent. He has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a fellow at the Kluge Center and Black Mountain Institute. He's the author of three acclaimed nonfiction books, Honor in the Dust, Theodore Roosevelt, War in the Philippines, and The Rise and Fall of America's Imperial Dream, which was a New York Times book review editor's choice. Another one of his books is Last Stand at Quezon, which received the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation's General Wallace M. Green Jr. Award for Distinguished Nonfiction, which we'll be talking about today. So welcome on. Thanks, Riley. Thanks for having me. And to start off with some broader questions, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in Vietnam and the Battle of Quezon? So my love of history really goes deep into my childhood, but it's really been an evolving love that one of my earliest memories is going to the public library in the little town that I grew up in on the edge of the Missouri Ozarks town called Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and public library was just a huge part of my life. Neither of my parents went to college, 
They grew up during the Depression under sort of difficult circumstances. But my mother loved reading and loved history. And I was the youngest of three children. She made sure that we were reading and spending a lot of time in the public library. And I loved from an early age to go up in the adult library rather than the children's library and to wander in the stacks and look at history books. And my first passion was really the U.S. Civil War. And so I was fascinated with the books of Shelby Foote and Bruce Catton, also former journalist turned historian's name, McKinley Cantor, and other authors really of the 50s and 60s who had written a lot of the Civil War. And keep in mind, the centennial of the Civil War had happened in the 60s. I grew up with that as sort of the backdrop. And then we started making trips to Civil War battlefields that we were, I guess, about a three-hour drive from Shiloh and went there a few times. And then in 1968, we made sort of an epic trip to the east and visited Civil War battlefields throughout Virginia. During that time, though, the Vietnam War was sort of gaining in intensity. So I was growing up with this fascination with Civil War history, but all the time there was this war that was unfolding and gaining in intensity throughout the 60s. And pretty much from 1965 to 66 on, my hometown newspaper had a front page story every day on what was happening in Vietnam. And, and that only intensified through 66, 67, and 68. And so by the time we made that trip to the East, that Vietnam was really uh, had consumed America and the campus protests, the anti-war movement, rising casualties that Spring of 68, there had been Quezon and the Tet Offensive. LBJ had announced that he wasn't running for re-election. Essentially, his presidency had been devoured by Vietnam. We had the assassinations of MLK and Robert Kennedy. And then that sort of convulsive summer of 68 that concluded with the March on Washington, the Civil Rights March. And then in August, we happened to be in Washington when the Soviets rolled into Czechoslovakia. So it was a year of where these clashing forces of the Cold War and then Vietnam was sort of hurtling to a climax as well. So all of that really drew me in and fascinated me as a young reader and a young lover of all things American history. So over time, that Civil War interest sort of gradually shifted to Vietnam, which was the war that, that really hung over my childhood and adolescence. And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered, either as an investigative journalist or while writing some of your books? Well, journalism for me really was an outgrowth of my love of history. And those two disciplines I initially was growing up thinking I wanted to be a Civil War battlefield historian. And then the immediacy with journalism of where you're actually getting to cover events of great importance of watching history unfold. And so that really started to draw me in. Uh, Watergate happened as I was in high school, Woodward and Bernstein and all of that. And so it really sort of became this meshing of history and current events. And so I started out learning kind of the nuts and bolts of reporting. But early on, I was always looking for historical angles in the stories that I sought out. And so there sort of became this merging of the two and then in 1984, I really had this desire to go witness history in a way that the U.S. seemed to have progressed beyond a lot of the problems that developing countries were having. And so I went out to freelance in the Philippines in 1984, and it was a life-changing experience to 
be a young reporter in a country that was under a dictatorship at the time, the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos, which was supported by the U.S. It was a challenging experience in all senses, physically, mentally, having to adjust to life in a developing country. I lived like a local. I didn't have much money. I'd saved up a couple thousand dollars. And so it was a very intense experience that was physically demanding, mentally demanding as well of being confronted with poverty and corruption and conflict on an epic scale. So those were sort of the first challenges I think that I encountered of where it was you're trying to deal with all of these challenges of daily life, living in a harsh climate in a country that was in the throes of upheaval and all of those things. And that led to the first book that I did, which was on the communist revolutionary movement in the Philippines called, the book was called Red Revolution, which I was working on through 87 through 89, was published in 89. And that required going out in the countryside and actually going out on patrols with military units and then with communist guerrilla units and going into areas the communists controlled to interview people and to try to get a firsthand look at why people were supporting this movement and why a poor peasant was taking up arms and risking everything. So those were physical mental, intellectual challenges that I think really helped shape me and educate me and immerse me in real life. And those sorts of problems are very different, obviously, from first world problems and challenges in journalism or life back in the States. And as I sort of gravitated more into investigative in-depth reporting, that brings in a whole other range of challenges. But that also sort of brought me back again in, in the realm of history, which is that immersion, that immersive sort of process of where a historian drills down really deeply. And so that's the type of journalism that I really gravitated toward and enjoyed was something that would allow me to immerse myself deeply, really sort of emulating what a historian does. And to get into the Battle of Quezon, which we'll be talking about today and you've written extensively about, to start, did the area around Quezon in the northern part of South Vietnam see much fighting in 1966 and 67, or was it considered sort of a safe haven for the North Vietnam? Great questions sort of setting up the drama that played out in 68. And let me take a step back and say that, again, Vietnam, I always knew that I wanted to write a book about Vietnam because of the impact it had on my life, not directly in my family, that my brother graduated from high school in 1974. So there was sort of that rising concern if you were growing up in the late 60s in the U.S. of the war still going to going on. Am I going to end up there? Am I going to get drafted? And I graduated from high school in 77, and so still it was very much this soundtrack, if you will, to my childhood and adolescence. And so I started reading deeply in it. And after writing a book in 89 and then spending much of the 90s working on a World War II project that still is alive and kicking, and I've gotten back to and is finally sort of nearing fruition. I had returned to the Philippines to write my second book, which was on the uh, forgotten chapter in U.S. history, really, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Philippine-American War. And so that sort of kept tugging me back into Asia. I had spent 10 years in Asia as a correspondent. And in my second incarnation as a correspondent in Asia, from 1997 to 2002, I spent a lot of time in Vietnam. I would go to Vietnam. I was based in Bangkok. I went once or twice a year to Vietnam for trips of several days or a couple of weeks. And I got around the country quite a bit. Everyone I talked to in Vietnam, North and South, I wanted to know what their experience had been during the war years. And I was just utterly fascinated by what had happened to their lives and their families. And obviously, if you were a Southerner, 
and had served in the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, Arvin, your life was upended if you did not get out in 1975, that former soldiers were sent to re-education camps, the families got really the dregs of employment opportunities and education opportunities, and so life was really hard. And then I talked to Northerners, some of whom wound up in the South, some of whom had endured the U.S. bombing of Hanoi and other areas in the North. And so that only solidified that belief that I knew I wanted to write about the war. And by the time I was ready after that, my second book, Honor in the Dust, on the Philippine-American War came out in 2012, I pretty quickly focused on 68. That was the pivotal year. That was the year that I think that I became very much aware of the war. And so I knew I wanted to focus either on Quezon or Tet. And the more that I did preliminary research, I really felt like that Quezon was such a major moment in the war and justice had not been done to it in terms of the focus put on it. So that led me to focus on Quezon, which in the public mind was always sort of part of Tet, but it was really a separate battle, a separate incident that is shrouded in mystery and controversy. And so as I then decided that Quezon would be my focus, I started drilling down on trying to answer the questions of what was Quezon? Why were we there? How did we get there? And so to get back to your question of what was happening in Quezon in 66, 67, 68, or the lead up to 68, the U.S. had first come to Quezon in the early 60s, around 62, special forces camp. And the significance of Quezon, if I can sort of for the moment, for a quick moment, paint a mental picture of its importance, where it's located, why we were there. The main highway in Vietnam is the north-south, the old French route, Route 1, that runs along the coast, the length of the country. And then around the middle point of the country, there was an east-west route called Route 9 that ran from Route 1 into the Annamite Highlands, into the foothills, all the way into Laos. And Route 9 became the route, the highway, just south of the DMZ, the demilitarized zone that became the de facto border between the communist north and the uh, U.S.-aligned South Vietnam. And so the U.S. had built a series of strong points along Route 9, this French highway, which was really a dirt road. Very quickly, it, it becomes sort of this dirt little more than a dirt track as it climbs into the hills and the mountains. And in the end of the line, the last strong point became this special forces camp in at Quezon. And then the Marines later came as the U.S. ramped up forces in Vietnam in 1965. The Marines arrived, uh, came ashore at Da Nang. Then the Marines established a combat base Quezon and the special forces moved a couple of miles further along Route 9 toward the border with Laos and set up a camp at a village called Long Vey. So Quezon Combat Base became really this anchor for the U.S., the northernmost defensive line that the U.S. had in the provinces that the military called I-Corps, the northernmost provinces. And so Quezon was through remote was really spared the worst of the fighting and for the most part, and it was a very beautiful area, the mountains and uh, jungle and these fast flowing streams and large fish and tigers and all of these, uh, the flora and fauna was extraordinary. In the spring of 1967, the U.S. became aware that the North Vietnamese had uh, dug in on the hill outposts, the high ground just north and northwest of Quezon Combat Base. And so the Marines went in to push them out. And there was a rather large and intense battle that was fought over several days. 
in the spring of 1967 that became known as the Hill Fights. And there were, I'm pulling this from memory, and I may be a little off here, but something on the order of a couple of hundred, 250 or so, I think, Marines were killed in this very intense fighting over several days in the Hill Fights. And pardon me if I'm wrong on that, I don't have that right in front of me, those numbers. But the point is this, this was a, a major very intense fight. And it first really turned the spotlight toward Quezon and both his potential importance and its vulnerability and the importance of that high ground. After the hill fights, Quezon sort of lapsed back into a kind of a lazy summer of 67. So there was intense fighting elsewhere, but at Quezon, it was sort of easy duty again through that summer and fall of 67. There were, again, intense battles happening elsewhere. There was an intense siege at Contien further east along that Route 9 sort of northern strongholds of U.S. forces. But Quezon was pretty much spared, and it was fairly light duty through 67. And then late 67, there were rumblings that that was going to change. The U.S. intelligence started to pick up on uh, a huge massing of North Vietnamese forces across the DMZ, and then also an infiltration of North Vietnamese forces into I-Corps, and U.S. intelligence concluded that Quezon was the target. And so 67 drew to a close with growing signs of a showdown at Quezon. And was part of the idea to build such a large base um, in that area? Was it built to eventually support potential operations into Laos or Cambodia, or was that never really considered? No, I think you're exactly right. I think that Quezon was viewed, its value was viewed when it was anchoring that defensive line that ran from east to west from Route 1. But you're exactly right. It's proximity to Laos. And keep in mind that across the border in Laos, the Quezon was only uh, five or six miles from the border. And then you go a little further into Laos and you have the Trung San Trail, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, what we call the Ho Chi Minh Trail, this network of supply lines running through the jungle of Laos coming from North Vietnam. And so you had troops and military materiel that they were flowing in a large volume down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and then entering South Vietnam at various points. And so Quezon was sort of the perfect jumping off point, the staging point for operations into Laos. And General William Westmoreland had envisioned, fantasized, if you will, mounting a massive operation that would push into Laos and sever the Ho Chi Minh Trail and this flow of personnel and materiel. So Quezon was seen as offering that opportunity of being an anchor, not only as a defensive position, but also for offensive operations that could turn the tide of the war by severing the main supply line of the North Vietnamese running to the south. And on the opposing side, um, what did the NVA sort of make of this base? What was their strategy towards dealing with it? And did they ever consider a serious attempt to overrun the base or recreate the Battle of Dien Bien Phu? So this starts getting into the area of controversy that involves Quezon of sort of establishing what were North Vietnamese intentions toward Quezon. And that's a subject that is, there are very divided opinions on it. First, a bit of background. You mentioned Dien Bien Phu. That very much was the specter that hung over Quezon. Dien Bien Phu was this remote French stronghold in the far northwest corner of Vietnam when it was still one country under French colonial rule. And the French had this outpost there. It was surrounded by high ground. It was accessible for resupply only by air and very susceptible to bad weather during the wet season. And so the North Vietnamese forces, communist forces known as the Viet Minh back in the 1940s and 1950s, 
focused on Dien Bien Phu as this place of great French vulnerability. And so they had moved artillery onto the high ground, laid siege, and after a 54-day siege at, at Dien Bien Phu, the French were forced to surrender. And that essentially ended French rule over Vietnam. The French passed the torch in Vietnam to the United States. Vietnam was divided into a communist north and a pro-U.S. south. And so Dien Bien Phu became sort of this great milestone in Vietnamese history and particularly in the Vietnamese communist movement. And so Quezon, there were certainly superficial similarities with Dien Bien Phu, that it was relatively remote. It was in the far northwest corner of South Vietnam. It was susceptible to weather. It was foggy, rainy, difficult to resupply. The road had been cut in the late summer and fall of 1967. And so the U.S. Marines and Special Forces at Quezon could only be resupplied by air by late 1967 and early 68 as the North Vietnamese started showing interest in it. And so General Westmoreland certainly was aware and studying the possibility of Quezon becoming Dien Bien Phu. And I want to interject here that in hindsight, a lot of the blame for Dien Bien Phu and analogy at Quezon has been laid on media coverage. And in fact, Westmoreland had initiated a study in early 67 of what are the similarities of Quezon with Dien Bien Phu? What are the possibilities of this turning into an American Dien Bien Phu? So this was very much on the minds of Westmoreland and U.S. military officials as well. Once the siege of Quezon happened and unfolded in 68, the media obviously focused on that Dien Bien Phu analogy and that did become something of a cliche, but it would be incorrect to suggest that this was not also on the minds of U.S. military forces and that Westmoreland was not having his historians, his staff look at the possibility of Quezon becoming a Dien, America's Dien Bien Phu. But the distances involved were much less. Dien Bien Phu was something like 250 miles from Hanoi. And so it was, that was a rather significant distance back in 1954. And given the relative weakness of French air power during the war and its ability to control what was happening on the ground. On the other hand, Quezon was about a 10-minute flight from the coast, and it was only 30 miles inland from the South China Sea. So those were a rugged 30 miles that, that, again, the road was cut. U.S. ground forces would have to fight their way up. But we're not talking about this sort of isolation that happened at the Bien Phu. And so similarities, but some also important distinctions at Quezon. And to get into some of the hill fights that you described, in Quezon itself, how crucial was the high ground to protecting the main base? And how isolated were these Marines who were up there from this base? Yes. And I want to make a distinction. Uh, the term hill fights has become associated. That is what is now uh, used to describe that combat in the spring of 67. Now, there were, during the siege of Quezon in 68, there were these in, intense battles for the hill outposts. But the specific term hill fights, I want to reserve that for describing what happened in 67, that battle being known as the hill fights. And I know that the Marines who fought there feel in 67 feel like that, that their work, their heroism there, the blood that they shed has been overlooked by history. And it has to a large extent. And that's unfair. And so I want to make sure that we note that there was a significant battle in 67. And then as we shift to 68, we're talking about the siege and then the battle for the high ground that played out. So let me, again, sort of paint a mental picture that the Quezon Combat Base sat on a plateau 
just off Route 9. And then as you go a few miles to the north and northwest, you quickly get into the this high ground. And so the U.S. had fortified outposts on hills that were identified by their height in meters. So the far west outpost that the U.S. had established was Hill 81 South. And then coming back toward the east, closer to Quezon Combat Base, you had Hill 861. And then you had further east, a hill called 558. And that was, it played into combat some, but it was not as much, did not as figure as greatly into what transpired in the 1968 siege. And then there were some smaller posts established once the siege began. There was a hill just off 861 that became known as 861 Alpha, but that was not fortified by U.S. forces until the siege began, and so that was late January. But very clearly, those became the initial focus of North Vietnamese forces. And let me get back quickly to the controversy of what were North Vietnamese intentions and what I had touched on earlier, that there still is some question as to what their intention was. And what we did not know, what the U.S. did not know in 1968, 67 and 68, was there was an intense and bitter power struggle in the North Vietnamese Communist Party throughout 67. And so you sort of had the uh, old guard and Ho Chi Minh and Von Nguyen Giap, who was the hero of Dien Bien Phu. And then you had sort of the uh, young guard, another power block that was led by Politburo member Le Zuan. And he had gained the upper hand and was in, Ho Chi Minh was very old and in failing health. And Giap sort of lost out. And Giap very much wanted to focus a major effort directed at Quezon that was modeled after the success at Dien Bien Phu. But Le Zuan had much greater ambitions and wanted to attack coastal strongholds, urban centers. They believed that the Viet Cong, the Vietnamese communists in the south and infiltrated northern cadres, were poised to be able to overthrow the U.S.-aligned regime in the South. And so there was a struggle over whether or not there should be a focus on Quezon, this remote U.S. base, and to try to strike this dramatic blow of overrunning a U.S. outpost or to attack the coastal enclaves, the very urbanized coastal enclaves where most of the population lived in South Vietnam. And so the strategy that evolved was something of a hybrid. And again, General Jop saw Quezon as something that was a prize that to be seized that could deal a mortal blow to the U.S. involvement in the South. And then you had those that favored this urban insurrection model who believed that they could literally uh, topple the Southern regime and that they saw Quezon as a ruse, as bait that they would make a move toward Quezon, draw U.S. reinforcements, and then strike in the urban center. So there is still, to this day, some dispute. And until Hanoi fully opens its archives, and that may never happen, and we don't know the extent to which perhaps the record has been shaded or documents have disappeared or documents that may not be legitimate documents, written after the fact have been introduced. All of those questions, we simply don't know. But we do know that at least there was an element of the North Vietnamese leadership who felt like Quezon should be a primary objective and there could be this decisive fight there. At the same time, General Westmoreland welcomed that fight. He was frustrated with fighting a very elusive enemy, and he hoped to draw the North Vietnamese into a pitched battle, a set battle at Quezon, where U.S. artillery and air power could deal a crippling blow to North Vietnamese forces. So General Westmoreland was actually dangling the Marines at Quezon as bait, at least an element in North Vietnam 
was very much willing to take that bait and pull off what they hoped would be this humiliating, crippling defeat to the U.S. by overrunning a major U.S. base. And as you mentioned, some of these hilltop outposts, I wanted to shift to the Special Forces camp at Lang Bay. In this particular battle, was this the first time that the North Vietnamese used tanks against American forces? And did Marines at Khe Sanh attempt to relieve this Special Forces outpost? Mm-hmm. So Long Bay had become the U.S. Special Forces camp, and it was uh, about five miles or so, I think three to five miles southwest of the combat base. And it was very difficult to get to. If you went overland on Route 9, that that territory was really ripe for an ambush. And then the overland route was hard jungle. The Marines had actually done sort of a test run earlier in January trying to see, okay, could we resupply, could we relieve Longvay if they came under heavy attack? And it was determined that it was going to be such a fraught effort that they most certainly would be ambushed and wouldn't be able to do it. And so there had been this commitment that the Marines and Colonel David Lowndes, the uh, commander of the Marines at Quezon Combat Base, that they would relieve Longvay. By the time the siege actually got underway on January 20th, 21st, Colonel Lowndes had made the decision that this wasn't happening, that it could not happen, that the base, the combat base itself needed to be preserved. And so Colonel Lowndes was getting instructions higher up the chain of command to essentially draw in forces and ensure the survival of Quezon Combat Base. And, uh, and so that was essentially leaving these outposts to their own. So the siege began with a nighttime attack, the, the North Vietnamese forces on the Marines on Hill 861. And then a bombardment of the Quezon Combat Base. This was all happening during the night, early morning hours, January 20th, early morning of January 21st. And then a small U.S. contingent in Quezon Village, a few miles south of the combat base, was also came under heavy North Vietnamese attack. That was the district headquarters there. So the U.S. Army Advisory Group and, again, a small Marine contingent, the Quezon Village. And so 861 held. The lines were breached, but in that first attack, they were the lines breached, and then the North Vietnamese were pushed back. And then gradually, over the next two-week period, the North Vietnamese encircled the combat base, encircled all of the outposts. The Marines had moved up to 861 Alpha, and that also was encircled. And then on February 5th, the North Vietnamese began a series of attacks. They had encircled all the U.S. strong points, and then they started a systematic attack trying to overrun these. 861 Alpha was first struck in an early morning attack on February 5th. Lines breached but ultimately held after a fierce, fierce battle. And then the attention turned to Long Bay, the Special Forces camp, which was just across the border from Laos, was very vulnerable. And it was susceptible as well because of the difficulty of trying to send forces to secure it. So that began with an attack of North Vietnamese forces attacking both ground forces and backed by light tanks. And you're absolutely right. That was the first use of North Vietnamese tanks in the war in the South. And so it was a very notable and harrowing moment for U.S. forces. The Special Forces camp was overrun. A small contingent of Americans had retreated to the command bunker, and that command bunker held out for several hours and was only saved by the heroic efforts of some U.S. pilots who were flying raids and found a uh, literally almost, it was the equivalent of a keyhole or a pinhole in the clouds, the cloud cover to be able to drop down to the deck and drive back to uh, drop bombs and explosives, napalm to drive back the uh, North Vietnamese forces that were about to overrun the command bunker. And so the uh, Americans withdrew, but the camp, the special forces camp was overrun. And so that sort of left open now that approach from Laos in the West. And so North Vietnamese forces started coming in in 
significant strength up Route 9 from Laos and pressing closer. So the combat base was bracing for this massive assault, uh, massive human wave assault was the great fear. There was one other small Marine outpost, a platoon-sized outpost that became known as Hill 64, known for the number of Marines that were on it rather than the height. And it came under a severe attack in the early morning of February 8th. At that point, and the Marines had to be withdrawn, that they were overrun, reinforcements allowed the Marines to escape. But essentially at that point, then, the Hill outposts 881 South and 861 were simply trying to survive. They could only be resupplied by helicopter. Long Bay, the Special Forces camp, overrun. And now the expectation was North Vietnamese were going to attempt a massive assault on the combat base. So that was the scene in early February, about two weeks into the siege. And was there ever this sort of mass and human wave attack that you sort of describe, or was it pretty much this constant fighting at these isolated outposts on the various hills at Quezon? So that's another point of debate. And I think that a lot of journalists and historians who have sort of accepted conventional wisdom and have done almost sort of a drive-by treatment of Quezon, the standard history is that there wasn't a massive attempt, that there wasn't a serious attempt to overrun the base. The Tet Offensive began to unfold the, these urban attacks that Lezuan and uh, his faction of the Politburo in the North wanted began to play out January 30, 31, and Hawaii became the center of a massive month-long battle, the, the former imperial capital city of Hawaii. And the North Vietnamese forces that were arrayed around Khe Sanh, and there were 20,000 and then another 10,000 that were within a day's march of Khe Sanh. Some of those forces then were shifted to the coast to the fight at way. And so the conventional wisdom among at least a certain set of American journalists and historians is that Quezon was all along was simply a ruse, that there wasn't a serious effort made to attack Quezon, and that really the main event was the Tet Offensive, these urban attacks. Mark Bowden takes that line in his book on Way, massive, impressive book, gives really short shrift to Quezon. And I think that that's a mistake, and I think that's an error, that I do think that there was a hybrid strategy, the Quezon, that there was an initial attempt aimed at drawing U.S. forces, attacks on the coastal centers, and then there were serious efforts at Quezon, and I think the Quezon was still seen as a prize that once those coastal centers fell, that they would return to Quezon. Well, the coastal centers did not fall, that the uh, Vietnamese communist forces in the South suffered massive casualties that in a military sense, the Tet Offensive was disastrous setback for the Vietnamese. In a propaganda sense, it was a success, but in a military sense, it was not. But meanwhile, things were happening at Khe Sanh, and it's sort of the conventional histories sort of airbrush that out. And I think that that's wrong and it's omitting the full story. So the combat base itself was only able to be resupplied by transport aircraft. And that became a very dicey proposition in early February. It was hard between the weather and then Vietnamese sniper fire, anti-aircraft fire to get aircraft in. And there were some incidents of aircraft taking fire, aircraft crashing, in a few instances or suffering significant damage and not being able to be flown out. And so there was some uh, dramatic footage of transports burning on the uh, runway, Quezon and all that, that became the staple of evening news. And there was intense discussion between Westmoreland and his chain of command through Honolulu the SYNCPAC headquarters in Honolulu to the Pentagon and the White House as to whether or not Quezon could be held. Was it going to be overrun? And were tactical nuclear weapons required to save the combat base from 
becoming America's Dien Bien Phu. And LBJ, these studies and discussions were actually underway through the first couple of weeks of February 1968 of whether or not perhaps U.S. might need to use tactical nuclear weapons to prevent Quezon Combat Base from being overrun. Word leaked. And so LBJ shut down the discussions at that point. But these were under consideration, and LBJ did not rule them out. So he was determined to hold Quezon regardless. Now, meanwhile, the North Vietnamese continued to move closer and closer, to dig in closer to the base. And the Marines were under instructions to just hold on, keep your heads down, survive. They stopped sending patrols out. And so the Vietnamese were literally getting within... 100 meters of the wire in some places, and even closer, particularly around the eastern perimeter of Quezon Combat Base. And so a Marine patrol was sent out on February 25th to sort of see what was out there. And the the patrol was ambushed, and it was a dramatic and traumatic incident. About half the patrol, platoon-sized patrol, was wiped out, became known as the Ghost Patrol Marines of Bravo 126. And air support flying overhead during that patrol noticed, spotted how close the lines, Vietnamese lines had come on the east side of the base. So there were probes and attacks and sniping and all this. And then there was a significant push on the night of February 29th, this was a leap year, February 29th, March 1st, during that long night, there were successive waves. The North Vietnamese forces succeeded in breaching the outer wire in a few spots, but they were forced back. And I think that where the story, a piece of the story that gets left out was the massive effectiveness, the decisive effectiveness of U.S. artillery and U.S. air power in breaking up the massing of North Vietnamese forces. The NVA, they were attempting to mass forces for this huge attack, and they were spotted and hit. The U.S. had electronic sensors that were being used. They were also using artillery firecracker rounds, as they were known, which were these anti-personnel rounds that had just been used for the first time in the defense of the Long Bay Special Forces camp. And so these rounds were tremendously effective. They were essentially artillery canister rounds or cluster bombs in the aerial bombardment sense of uh, And so the attempts to mass the forces needed to breach the wire and to penetrate Quezon Combat Base in force, they simply couldn't mass without getting cut to pieces, without getting decimated by U.S. artillery and air. And so these attacks on February 29th, March 1st, were the last serious attempts, but I believe that they were serious attempts, and there were multiple waves of efforts to penetrate before the casualties, the thousands of casualties on the NBA side forced an abandonment. And that became sort of the last attempt. The NBA continued to pound the combat base, sometimes intensely with artillery fire, but really that was the last serious attempt to penetrate the wire to overrun the base by ground. But I think there was a serious attempt to do that. And how did kind of the Americans go about resupplying the base? Did scarcity of food or supplies ever become a serious problem throughout the siege? It absolutely did. And as noted that the Hill Outpost could only be resupplied and casualties taken off by helicopter. And so they were particularly vulnerable. And the courage of the helicopter pilots flying in and out of 881 South and 861 and then uh, 861 Alpha and Hill 558, extraordinary courage of flying through bad weather and hills and poor visibility under enemy fire, enemy sniper fire, mortar rounds. If you were on the ground for 30 seconds, the artillery rounds would start falling. And so uh, there were some chopper losses. At the combat base, these fixed wing flights were increasingly precarious, and they simply were not getting the supplies, both the hill outposts and the base. The men uh, rations were reduced. Men were going hungry. They were down to two meals a day and then 
one meal a day on the hill outposts. And so the situation was quite dire and something had to be done. And so what was devised, the helicopter pilots who were flying these precarious, very dangerous missions sort of set in motion this discussion that that resulted in an extraordinary uh, brilliant solution that U.S. Air Forces came up with, and it was known as the super gaggle. And essentially, they would send in waves of fixed-wing aircraft in advance that would blanket known NVA gun positions with explosives, with tear gas, with strafing fire and all of these things. And then once that had happened to suppress enemy fire, then the large helicopters with bundles beneath them of massive bundles of supplies would swoop in and drop these supplies onto the hill outposts and then make their getaway. And so that solved the problem. Once the super gaggle was initiated, the hill outposts were no longer in danger of starving to death or not having adequate supplies, medical supplies and food. And so the problem of resupply was addressed. And the same, the combat base system was devised of the aircraft were coming in. Sometimes they were not even landing, that they would offload pallets with parachutes attached and slide them off the rear ramps of uh, transport aircraft and then pull away. So gradually the supply crisis eased through March and then culminating with the uh, attempt to break the siege that was mounted the 1st of April. And to follow up on that breakthrough attempt, did the siege pretty much come to an end when the 1st Cavalry Division broke through or would fighting kind of continue even after the siege had sort of ended? Sort of yes and no, that yes, this siege was broken largely. So Operation Pegasus was launched in the early morning hours of April 1st. That previous evening, March 31st in the U.S., LBJ had made his shocking announcement that he would not be running for re-election. And so you had the um, 1st Cav and then Marines. So Air Cav forces were choppering in and sort of leapfrogging ahead, and then Marines pushing up Route 9 from the coast. And so they gradually were driving away the NVA forces, and then the base itself, April 7th, April 8th, the hookup happened of where um, the forces of Pegasus actually marched into Quezon Combat Base, and there was a handover. And the troops were rotated out the Marines who had been on uh, 881 South and 861. But then more Marines were brought in, and the uh, Army forces moved on, and Quezon Combat Base was, uh, you sort of had a turnover of forces there. But then intense fighting flared up. The siege was broken, but in April and May into June, there continued to be some significant clashes between U.S. and North Vietnamese forces. And again, the journalists had moved on after Westmoreland had announced the siege was broken, siege lifted, the spotlight turned elsewhere. And meanwhile, Americans were still fighting and dying throughout those weeks. And I know that the men who were there then really felt, still feel, somewhat burned or bitter that their sacrifices, their combat has largely been overlooked because the history books say, and Westmoreland declared and the media reported, the siege was lifted. And so, okay, we're done here, moving on. And that really wasn't the case, that there again continued to be some very sharp fighting until the order came to abandon Quezon Combat Base. And so in early July, the abandonment of the base, the hill outposts and the base, was undertaken. And U.S. forces withdrew a few miles back to the east, back down Route 9 to a place called Kalu. And the North Vietnamese propaganda, the North Vietnamese radio broadcast the dramatic victory as they cast it, the abandonment of Quezon Combat Base due to the forces of North Vietnam. And so it was a propaganda victory for the North, Marines that I had interviewed, whose stories I told in my book, Last Stand in Quezon, they were stunned and shocked. Those that were still in country elsewhere in I-Corps, they couldn't believe that the U.S. 
without a fight and just walked away with Quezon Combat Base. And so it became something of a metaphor for U.S. actions in Vietnam of spending blood and treasure to take a hill or to hold a strong point and then to give it up for murky reasons. And so Quezon then at that point, journalists really seized on that and then historians kind of took their cue of Quezon being the metaphor for Westmoreland's flawed, foolish strategy of the overall foolishness or pointlessness of the American struggle in South Vietnam. That was the view that was framed in media coverage and also in a lot of the historical coverage that has followed the abandonment of Quezon. And the follow-up on the abandonment of the base, in your research, did you find a concrete decision that came about to abandon the base? Was it William Westmoreland? Was it the commander of the Marines and I Corps? I mean, what was the decision-making process that drove the idea to abandon Quezon? Well, the Marines never wanted to be there. <laughs> Let's make that clear. The Marines, the 3rd Marine uh, Division, that, which was their forces that were there, this wasn't what Marines do. The Marines are not static garrison forces. That's not what they're trained to do. And they thought it was wrongheaded all along to have Marines stuck in these strong points and essentially told to hunker down and hold. It just went against the whole nature of what it was like to be a Marine, what Marines were trained to do, which was to be offensive forces, to seize the initiative, to keep pushing ahead, whether it's storming a beach or taking territory inland, whatever. And the Marines had actually crafted a fairly effective counterinsurgency strategy closer to the coast. And so they were doing good work that was showing achievements there. So they never agreed with the Westmoreland strategy of sticking Marines in force out at this strong point. And again, Westmoreland essentially using the Marines as bait. So the Marines were not sorry to pull back. It also, there was a handoff that Westmoreland shortly after the Pegasus resulted in Quezon Combat Base, the siege being officially lifted. Westmoreland declared victory and was kicked upstairs. He was brought back to the U.S. and command of U.S. forces in Vietnam was handed off to Creighton Abrams. And Abrams also was not sorry to let Quezon go, that Quezon, he was not invested in the strategy that had been crafted by Westmoreland. And so he welcomed the attempt. Kalu, several miles, I think it was seven to 10 miles back down Route 9, was much more defensible that the weather wasn't quite as dicey there as it was at Quezon. So in a lot of ways, the Kalu made more sense than holding on the Quezon combat base. Uh, so I think that Abrams was very eager to sort of cut and cut cleanly with Quezon and the strategy, the effort that Westmoreland had put together there. And the Marines, as I said, were not at all sorry that they never quite understood why, why are we here. And my final question is, overall, what do you think the legacy of the battle or siege at Quezon is? I think that Quezon, you have to look at it at a couple of levels, on a military level and then on a propaganda or political level. On a military level, that I think full credit to the Marines and the, the special forces who wound up uh, after Longvay was overrun back at uh, the combat base, they were handed a uh, bad hand. And they fought bravely. They fought uh, doggedly to hold the hill outposts under a great duress under very difficult circumstances to hold the combat base itself, that this was the, the subtitle of my book, Last Stand at Quezon, The U.S. Marines' Finest Hour in Vietnam, that I use that subtitle because I really felt like it was sort of the uh, pinnacle of Marine courage, Marine ingenuity, all of the qualities that are associated with the institution of the United States Marine Corps were on display at Quezon, uh, incredible valor. And again, this was a uh, bad hand they were dealt. They made the best of it. And they were told to hold these places. They held these places. 
And that's why I think the suggestion that there was not a serious attempt to, by the North Vietnamese to take Quezon, or there wasn't a serious effort to put pressure on the Marines, that that's false. And that also diminishes the efforts and the sacrifices of the Marines who were there. There were serious attempts. There were hundreds and hundreds of men, somewhere northwards of a thousand men during the Quezon campaign who gave their lives and you know, more wounded. So I think the suggestion that this wasn't real diminishes that effort. On a political and a propaganda level, that I think that Quezon was part of the two blows, the Tet Offensive and Quezon. And again, in the public mind, they're one, but they really were distinctive. That these images that were being flashed on the CBS Evening News and cover stories in Time and Newsweek, which were hugely influential back in the 1960s, to show U.S. forces sort of hunkered down after the U.S. public had been told that the North Vietnamese was on its last leg, that the war is almost over, that there's light at the end of the tunnel, there's victory ahead. And the impression that was given was the North Vietnamese could mount this significant effort to tie down the greatest military force in the world at a place like Khe Sanh. That really shook American confidence, as did the urban attacks and all, all of that footage and all of that articles, all the ink that was spilled in writing about the Tet Offensive. And so Quezon was another blow in terms of, I think, the American psyche regarding Vietnam, what was possible, what was conceivable, was victory attainable. And so it was a significant, I think, political and propaganda blow in terms of shaking the American belief that the war was going well and victory was just a little bit ahead. That I think the Quezon helped erode that sense that victory was achievable in Vietnam. So in that sense, that I think it was very much important. And I think that historians have given short shrift, journalists as well have given short shrift to the significance in that level. In a military and a strategic sense, it was not significant. It was more the individual stories of valor and heroism. But in that larger sense, you can't separate the political and the propaganda in war. And in Quezon, ultimately, by fighting and then walking away from it, it contributed to the sense of many Americans asking the question, what in the world are we doing there? So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Greg Jones. I know that I did. I think that personally, I learned a lot about maybe some of the mitigating factors surrounding Quezon, both at a macro and a micro level. So I always like during interviews when people are able to sort of zoom in and out from the personal experiences of soldiers to sort of the grand strategic implementations of the battle and whatnot. And I think ultimately my take on Quezon is that it was... I think a microcosm of sort of what was going wrong in Vietnam, that there wasn't really a true strategic direction to sort of winning the war, I guess. I think as we discussed a couple of episodes ago with the limited warfare episode, we talked about how there was a clear political goal. It was to prevent communism in South Vietnam and to create an independent South Vietnamese government that could do it itself. But the strategy that was used to go about that was, I guess, flawed. I don't know, flawed, but I think the problem was people didn't really understand the lengths and the will that North Vietnam was willing to go to win this war and that they were willing to fight as long as they had to. And unfortunately, in a democracy that during the draft, people have a stake in it. And it got to the point where it was, we don't want to be there. And that's kind of ultimately what happened, that anti-war movement, I think, sort of eventually brought the war to a close, probably longer than what most people would have liked. But again, I think Quezon showed all the heroism and courage of the young men that fought in Vietnam, but then also showed sort of the strategic misdirection that was going on with the eventual abandonment of the base. And you saw it time and again, whether it was at Quezon or Hamburger Hill later in 1969, or when Nixon expanded the war into Laos and Cambodia and then abandoned that. So again, all of it was sort of 
designed to sort of break the will of North Vietnam, but in sort of a communist authoritarian dictatorship, that was never going to happen. So I think ultimately, again, Quezon, it's an important place in the Vietnam War, but often gets overlooked because of everything that was going on. So I hope you learned a lot about the battle, about its significance, and about the impact that it ultimately had on Vietnam, both in the war and domestically back home. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 